Well, listening to that reading uh, that Josh just brought us from the book of Romans, if you found that hard to follow, I want to tell you, you're in good company. I've been consoled this week by the Apostle Peter. Uh, He writes in his second letter, some things in Paul's letters are hard to understand. And I reckon the second half of Romans 5 is right up there. It's taken me three drafts to get here this Sunday, and who knows, by the time I'm finished, maybe you think I should have written a fourth. We'll see. Time will tell. But for all of the complexity, actually, God has one very simple goal in mind for us here. This passage is all about reassurance. Reassurance that by the actions of one man, the sin-bearing death of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can confidently receive the gift of a right standing with God, fully justified, righteous, forgiven, welcome in his sight. And to prove just how effective this one action of the one man, Jesus Christ, really has been, we get this comparison between Adam and Jesus, which boils down to this. This is my one-sentence summary for what it's worth. What humanity lost in Adam has been more than restored in Jesus Christ. What we lost in Adam has been more than restored in Jesus Christ. Now, as we jump in, um, in your service sheet tonight, I think you've got a, a printout of Romans 5 there. I've given you that because when you come, this was helpful in my preparation. When you come to a, a tricky passage, it's helpful to look for repeated words and phrases. Because if nothing else, that at least will point you in the right direction. Now, you can take this or leave it. This was helpful to me. In yellow, you can see I've highlighted the phrase one man. It keeps coming up repeatedly, I think 11 times or something like that in the passage. So verse 12, the one man. Verse 14, the one to come and so on. The one man, the one man. It keeps coming up. Likewise, the word reign is repeated as in the reign of a kingdom. I think that one's in green. So verse 14 and verse 17, death reigns, sin reigns, verse 21, grace reigns, verse 21. There's also a repeated phrase of comparison. I can't remember what colour it is, but it's the how much more. You see it there in verse 15, again in verse 17, and then again in verse 20. How much more? Um, If I'd thought of it, I would have highlighted the word gift. I think that comes up six times or something like that. Now, so far, this is just information. We haven't approached the passage or at least unpacked it in any meaningful kind of way, but already we're making progress because if nothing else, we're being pointed in the direction that this is a passage of contrast between the one man, Adam, and the one man, Jesus Christ. But we should note from the outset, this comparison is lopsided since the work of Jesus in every way is superior to the work of Adam. I've isolated verse 17, probably worth following as I read this. This is our topic sentence for tonight. For if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Death reigns through Adam. But how much more will those who are in Christ reign in life? That's the gist of this verse. What humanity lost in Adam has been more than restored through Jesus Christ. So what have we got? We've got two men. We've got two kingdoms. And we've got two very different outcomes. 
Let's take a look at the first of these. Let's look at Adam, the reign of sin and death. Follow with me from verse 12. This, therefore, this is a conclusion to the previous section. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, verse 13, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin's not charged to anyone's account where there is no law. That is, you can't break a law that you haven't got, even still. Nevertheless, verse 14, that is, even without the law, because sin is already in the world, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Now, that last phrase there, the pattern of the one to come, just tuck that away, put it aside. We're going to come back to that. That'll be important in a minute. But what we're meant to observe here in verses 12 to 14 is how the one action of the one man affects the many. That's the pattern. The actions of the one individual affecting the many. Now, sadly, in the case of Adam, he produces entirely negative results. Verse 12, Adam plunges everyone and everything into a four-stage death spiral. You can see it. Sin enters through Adam. Death enters through Adam's sin, death spreads through Adam, and death reigns because of Adam. Sin enters, death enters through sin, death spreads, death reigns. All this, verse 19, because through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. Death through sin is Adam's contribution to the world. It's not exactly what you'd want on your CV, but there it is. All this through the one action of the one man. Now, it's true, Eve ate first, and we see that silly description, don't we? Oh, well, the woman gave it to me. Oh, the serpent deceived me. Well, yeah, it's true, Eve ate first, but Adam is responsible because it was to Adam that God gave the command, don't eat it or you'll die. But now, as advertised, having broken the promise... Adam dies. First he dies spiritually as he's kicked out of the garden, ejected from the presence of God. Later, now cut off from the tree of life, Adam will die physically too. First he dies spiritually, then he dies physically. At which point I just want to draw out a simple but practical implication here and I draw your attention to the fact that death is not natural. Death is not part of God's good creation. Elton John sings a catchy tune but there is no circle of life. Death is unnatural. And yet in our inventiveness, in our denial, we've learned to accommodate death. Actually, we barely use the word. We talk in phrases like passed away. And then we listen to poems at funerals telling us that, look, Auntie Flo, she's not really dead. She lives on in our hearts through our memories. And I'll tell you, when I hear this said at funerals, I think to myself, strike, the coffin is right there in front of us. You could not get a more graphic visual illustration. And everybody knows Auntie Flo is lying dead inside, but we play these word games. Oh, she's not really dead. Yes, she is. And that's why we grieve. 
If ever there was a time to speak plainly, that's got to be it. Like a monarch who rules over their subjects, death reigns, verse 14. All this through Adam. Do you know, funnily enough, I heard this summed up well by an investment banker who spoke more truly than they realised. They said, you know, everything you see and touch is just future landfill, including you. You say, but that's pretty fatalistic, isn't it? I mean, what about all the brilliant achievements of our species? You know, electricity, penicillin, the aeroplane, the Big Mac. I mean, we have done a lot, haven't we? And that's to say nothing of the natural beauty of our creation. So why would we focus on the negative? You know, when I was little, my granddad used to take me to the Royal Easter Show. Now, this will date me a little bit, but what lives large in my memory is the Holden Racing Team and... These displays, the agriculture displays, I wonder if they still do this. I don't know. If they don't, they should. They used to replicate these rural landscapes using nothing but fresh produce. You know, apples and pumpkins and, I don't know, tomatoes, you name it. When I was a child, it was so big to me, I thought this looked like every fruit and vegetable in the whole world had been collected in one place. But, you know, for all of its beauty, the entire display is perishing the moment it's put out. Because in Adam's kingdom, everything breaks and everything dies, no matter how well you flourish in the meantime. But you don't have to go to the Easter show to see this. Just when you get home, open your fridge and you'll find those bendy carrots. You'll find your strawberries growing that funky white mould. And you'll find the grapes that are starting to go off and to taste like a little bit like, you know, Cheap Chardonnay, that kind of thing. And and while we're at it, how many of us are currently taking prescription medication, I wonder? Now, keep taking your pills, hear me say that, but it's a marker, isn't it? In everything, in Adam's kingdom, everything breaks, everything dies. And what we're learning here is that regardless of circumstances, whether tragic or expected, death is a moral matter. It's important we get this. Death is a moral matter. Look at verse 12. This is the progression. Just as sin entered the world through the one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. And you say to me, but how did we all sin? Well, the answer, as unfashionable as it might be, is that the Bible teaches solidarity. Which means that God raised up Adam to be our representative. And so in the garden, we are Adam and Adam is us. Now, in our culture, we prize individual rights, don't we? Individual rights over corporate responsibility. So we find this idea of solidarity with Adam hard to accept. I wasn't there. I didn't do it. Some are even optimistic enough to say, had I been there, things would be different. But just as we inherit physical and psychological characteristics from our ancestors, so too with Adam. His rebellious, sinful, corrupted DNA. We receive it all. His entire genetic code of sin. And the harsh reality that everybody dies proves the point. We are inescapably connected 
to the one action of the one representative, verse 18, the one trespass resulting in condemnation for all people. This is Adam's contribution. At which point I should remind us, because it mightn't feel like it yet, this passage is intended to reassure us that where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds all the more. So much so that through the saving action of Jesus Christ, we can confidently receive the gift of a right standing before God, fully justified, righteous, forgiven, welcome in his presence. Look again, verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That's a mouthful, but it boils down to that main idea. What was lost in Adam has been more than restored through Jesus Christ. Now, those with good memories will remember that earlier I asked you to tuck a detail away about Adam. It's in verse 14 where he's described as the pattern of the one to come. Here's the pattern. By the action of the one individual, many are affected. That's it. That's the only similarity we get in this passage between Adam and Jesus. They are both representatives of humanity. And the one similarity is that through the one action of the one individual, many are affected. That's it. That's all they've got in common. Because everything else from now on is a contrast of opposites. Adam brings death. Jesus brings life. Adam rebels. Jesus obeys. Adam brings condemnation. Jesus brings justification. Adam brings wrath. Jesus brings grace. And so we might put it simply, in every way, Jesus outshines Adam. Look at verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, and we've seen that, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Notice this is exclusive too. The gift comes from one man at one point in time through one action What humanity lost in Adam is more than restored through Jesus Christ. We see the same in verse 16. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin. That tells you something about God's holiness, doesn't it? The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation to everybody. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. That tells you something about God's patience, doesn't it? One of the dead great ones puts it like this. As Adam, by his ruin, involved and ruined us. That's the solidarity. So Christ, by his grace, restored us to salvation. If it sits uneasily with you to be in solidarity with Adam, I wonder how it sits with you to be in solidarity with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as our Roman series finishes, I want to draw out one final implication that I hope will encourage you to press on in the Christian life or to start the Christian life for the first time. Adam's failure was monumental. Nothing like it. 
And we saw, if you've been with us for this series, we saw the ugly consequences of our solidarity with Adam. Do you remember that long section, the second half of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, half of chapter 3, that lengthy, unrelenting cross-examination where week after week we were exposed as sinners before a holy God. It was unpleasant. And boy, we were glad when that finished. But you know, as it finished, you remember that horrible line, the concluding remarks? There's no one righteous, not even one. But what's been proven today is that for all our failures in Adam, and they are many, God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ is so much more. In Adam, all sin, yet God's grace overflows to the many, verse 15. In Adam, all are condemned, but God's grace brings salvation, verse 16. In Adam, all die, yet God's grace brings life through Jesus Christ, verse 17. In every way, the work of Jesus is superior to Adam, and this means God's grace is stronger to you than any sin you'll ever commit. I wonder if we believe that. That's why I say God's word here is intended for your reassurance that even though we've sinned terribly and we have, God's looked upon us with mercy. Through the sin-bearing death of his son, no less, he has made a way, made a way for people like us to be restored. I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask you, have you received this gift? That's what you do with a gift, isn't it? The gift of God's grace, the right standing with him, forgiveness of sins, it's offered to you, offered to you to receive. Do you remember Paul writes this letter to what would have been a relatively small church in Rome? A new church, people he didn't know. He didn't start this church, but he writes them this letter. And the people in Rome, the people of this church, they have received the gift of God's grace. And that gift enabled them to endure the persecution that's to come and to rejoice through the persecution that's to come. Those saints, they now rest in glory. You can too. You know, the vision of our church, it's printed on your bulletin every week. We want to see people being transformed by Jesus. It's a pretty simple vision. That's what we do. We want to see people being transformed by Jesus. But here's the thing. Transformation will only begin once you accept the gift of God's grace. As you say to him, Lord, look, I'm in Adam. I'm a hopeless sinner. Who would deny that? I'm a hopeless sinner in Adam and, Lord, I deserve your judgment. Who would deny that? And so, Lord, on account of Jesus, I ask you, would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? Would you change me? It comes straight from Psalm 51. Would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? Would you change me? Do you know a prayer like this is where true life begins? A prayer like this never gets old. A prayer like this will transform your life. A prayer like this, one heart at a time, will inspire a church to mission, to service, and to generosity. 
Lord, forgive me, cleanse me and change me. It'll change us, it'll transform us, and it'll transform us into the likeness of the very God who saves. Look again one last time, verse 17. For if, this is how God treats us, his enemies, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life? Adam was given the right to rule over creation. That was his privilege. But he traded it all for the lie of sin that he could somehow become like God. Here's the irony. He was already like God, created in his image, given the authority to rule. But instead, through sin, instead of ruling, Adam is ruled over. And comes under the reign of death. Not so with the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that last line of verse 17. God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life. In Jesus, you reign in life. Now. And in the life to come through resurrection. And so through the prophet Micah, do you remember he prays, who is a God like you? who forgives sin. And so what is there left to do with news like this? Well, receive the gift is the first thing you must do, but I suspect some of you have already done that. And so isn't the right response wonder and praise and putting your hand up to say, Jesus, you have saved me. How can I serve you? You are my king and I've got the privilege of serving you. How can I do that? What does that look like? Would you transform my heart that I would want to do that? that I'd respond in thanksgiving and praise. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? God's been good to us, friends. I'm going to lead us in prayer. You might know these words. They come from a well-known hymn, It Is Well, My Sin, Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Some more words from the Apostle Peter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, which is kept in heaven for you, who are shielded by God's power until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, as we've heard your word tonight, would you give us grace to receive it, understanding to know it, the faith to believe it, and the will to obey it. And we ask that through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.